I want to just read a few verses from the opening of the book of Joshua. We're going to think about, talk about courage. Joshua is one of the great places where there's this repeated refrain. And so I want to use uh, this as a jumping off point for our consideration of courage. Joshua chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9. This is God's word. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore rise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness, and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Let's pray. Father, we commit our time to you now. We confess to you that we are so often afraid. It is easy in places like this, in the safety of a home, in the safety of a church, in the safety of friends and people that think like us and agree with us, to think that we will be strong and courageous. But Father, when we think about the enemy, when we think about the possibility of losing friends, of losing jobs, of being hated, that's terrifying. And so, Father, we pray that you would pour upon us your spirit so that you would make us bold, that you would make us strong. Give us courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The modern evangelical church has lost much. We have lost influence. We have lost authority. But perhaps worst of all, we have lost our nerve. C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but it's the form of every virtue at the testing point. It's the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the highest point of reality. Those virtues would include, presumably, virtues like justice and kindness and 
humility. It's entirely possible to know what justice and mercy and humility are in the quiet of your church office. It's entirely possible to be able to to, to, to explain them on the board, to do a, a Sunday school class with children who just smile at you. And you know what justice is, and you know what kindness is, and you know what humility is. But hatred and fear and threats and name-calling and conflict have a way of muddying waters. They have a way of muddying our conviction. They don't really muddy what justice and mercy and humility are. Those virtues remain fixed. They, they remain clear. They're there. But suddenly, when you have people staring you in the face, dear friends, family members, saying, how could you say something like that? Do you know what it did to me? Do you know how it hurt? Suddenly, you think to yourself, was I really being kind? Was I really being humble? When the mobs come, suddenly your conviction is tested. The virtue is tested. And so this is why Lewis says this is what courage is. Courage is not a different virtue per se, but courage is every virtue at its testing point. Lewis again, this time in The Abolition of Man. Jared referenced this earlier. Lewis says, in battle... It is not a syllogism, it is not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. You know what a syllogism is, right? It's a, it's a logical construct, it's, a, it's an argument. You can, you can diagram an argument on a board and you can put it in its syllogistic form. He says, the argument on the board, being able to diagram something on the board, is not what is going to uh, keep your reluctant nerves and muscles to their post when, you've, when bombs have been dropping on you for three hours. It doesn't matter what's on the board. You're not thinking clearly anymore. How do soldiers handle three hours of bombing? It's right in here. It's in the gut. You're, you're, you're acting on instinct now. What you've been trained in. So Lewis continues. He says, the head rules the belly through the chest. The head rules the belly through the chest. Emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. Emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. Sentiments. We've, uh, all the speakers are taking various uh, opportunities to try to explain what is this thing that we're talking about, this social justice thing. What is this thing that we're talking about? And I think one of the ways you could think about it is it's the, it's, it's the tyranny, the metastasization of emotion, the, the rule of emotions. It's just emotions run amok. What is it? What is? What do you? What is everybody told to do over and over again? What's the? Oh, I, I'd say it's called the Disney Gospel. Here I am. I'm doing Disney. What's the Disney Gospel? Follow your heart. Right. That's the Disney Gospel. Follow your heart, and everything will work out. And in the end, everyone will admit you were right. Right. 
Do what feels good. Do what feels right. Do whatever you want. Follow your heart, and in the end, everything will turn out for you. And everybody, probably your parents, according to Disney movies, will admit they were wrong and you were right. It's a lie. It's a false gospel. Right? It's, it's, it's our emotions run rampant. Or nerves run rampant. And I think there's, a, there's a, a mirror of that happening in the church to the extent that Christians know like something bad is happening. This shouldn't be. This is crazy. This is insane. And yet we have, we ha- our nerves are gone. The head rules the belly through the chest. Emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. This is what courage is. Courage is emotions trained by virtue to remain steadfast in the midst of crisis, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of the third hour of the bombardment. Christians standing there, smiling, saying, no, I'm not going to budge. Love you, not going to change. Nope, it's still there in the Bible. This is courage. In his uh, Devil's Dictionary, the, uh, that old uh, reprobate Ambrose Bierce had this under his entry for valor, synonym of courage. It's a little quotation. It says, Why have you halted? roared the commander of a division at Chickamauga, who had ordered a charge. Move forward at once. General, said the commander of the delinquent brigade, I am persuaded that any further display of valor by my troops will bring them into collision with the enemy. That's the idea. Courage is necessary for bringing virtue into collision with the enemy. That's what virtue's for. The whole point of the light, the whole point of virtue, the whole point of love and kindness and mercy and justice, the whole point of it is to bring it to bear where there is darkness, where there is injustice, where there has been arrogance and pride. Courage is necessary for bringing virtue into collision with the enemy. And, and, and the point that I want to make is the thing that Christians really have to get down is it's not the case that if you're faithful, you might come into collision with the enemy. No. If you do not come into collision with the enemy, you are not being faithful. And so courage is not something that some people might need. Some Christians might need some courage. No, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to be faithful to him and faithful to his word, in this world you cannot exist faithfully in this world without the virtue, without the fruits of the Spirit, without the truth of God's word coming into collision with the world around you. It's not Whether it's just when. And so we need courage. 
But I began with reading from Joshua. In the opening verses, God commands Joshua to be strong and courageous three times. Verse 6 and verse 7, verse 9, the charge is given to Joshua for the purpose of carrying out two missions, two, a, tw- a twin mission, if you will, conquering the land of Canaan, which is spelled out there in verses 3 through 6, but closely tied to it is keeping the law of God, verses 7 and 8. Clearly, the latter is necessary for the success of the former. He must keep the law of God. He must not turn to the right or to the left so that the mission of taking the land will be successful. And the chapter actually ends with the officers, the elders of the people that have gathered before him, affirming that they will obey Joshua just like they did Moses. And they they go so far as to say anyone who rebels will be put to death. And then in a striking show of solidarity with Joshua, they actually repeat back to Joshua the same charge that he was given. Only be strong and very courageous. They repeat back to Joshua. You know, you might remember, there's a similar back and forth that actually takes place at the, at the end of the book of Joshua. You remember this? Joshua calls for all the tribes of Israel. He calls for Israel, and again, the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers assemble. And Joshua reviews their history, the story of Israel coming out of Egypt through the wilderness. They've now taken the promised land. And it's here that Joshua makes his famous confession of faith. It's one of the great um, Christian refrigerator verses. Right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a great verse. I think, I, I think it, it runs the risk of being one of those verses that you just see everywhere all the time and you think, yeah, that's, that's sweet, isn't it? That's just so nice. What a nice thought. Me and my house and there's flowers around it. It's just so sweet. But think about this for a second. Joshua says he's, we know Joshua's nearing 110 years old. He's going to die when he's 110. I actually just, uh, the other day I found that there's a, such a thing on the internet um, called a descendants calculator. Do you know there's this thing? I just, I just Googled it, you know? I mean, that's what you do. Descendants calculator, you can do it. I thought to myself, okay, so how many people are in Joshua's house? So I punched in, you can, you can, there's different ones, but I punched in five generations, 18 years between generations, five kids each. I don't know, it seems kind of reasonable. I don't know. I mean, you know, they have lots, lots of kids. That's only assuming, I think, monogamy. And, I, you know, there might have been multiple, uh, you know, wife might have died, got remarried, had more kids, I and mean, we don't know exactly, but, you know, I don't know, maybe mortality rates were high. I mean, okay, whatever. So, okay, but just... Run this with me. Five generations, 18 years between generations, five kids. How many descendants does Joshua have? Any mathematicians here? I'm just going on the website here. I don't know math. 3,904. Maybe it's a little high. But I'm going to say Joshua had at least hundreds if not thousands, in his house when he said that. Right? This is a little different image, isn't it? It's not like, it's not like you know, the cute family, you know, mom, dad, and three kids. That's for me and my house. 
Joshua's an old man with hundreds of descendants, maybe thousands. And he gathers the tribes together. And he says, you know who you are. You know what God's done. You know me. You know my family. We are going to serve the Lord. What about you? Does Joshua have the right to speak that way? For hundreds, if not thousands of people? Do you think that way? How can Joshua speak that way? I want to argue that the answer is courage, but I want to argue that it's a particularly sort, a particular sort of biblically shaped courage, what I'm going to call, because I'm Presbyterian, but you all can get on with this, covenantal courage. Baptists believe in covenants too, you know. I looked it up. I did. Unless the faithful, God-fearing, Bible-loving, Jesus-serving Christians of this land grow a covenantal backbone, we will continue to lose ground to this social justice zeitgeist. This courage commanded by God is a covenantal courage. What Joshua is announcing at the end is the fruit of his obedience to the commission he was given at the beginning. He obeyed God, and so he was able to speak that way. This courage is grounded in the way God deals with man in this world, and it is grounded in the way God has designed this world to work. That's why we must have it. So covenantal courage begins with learning to think and speak the way that the Bible does about how God views his people, particularly across generations, and how he deals with them. Covenantal courage is tied to a deep faith in the way God works through covenant. The 1689 Baptist Confession says, I was pretty proud of this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never be, they could never have attained the reward of life except by some, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Covenant is God's gracious condescension to man. Because of the creator-creature divide, we do not get to make appointments with the Almighty. But He makes appointments with us. He condescends to us. He's the maker. He's the potter. He's the Lord. And so He deals with us by way of covenant. Every Christian functionally believes in covenant because you have to explain how you got this problem of sin. Why are you in trouble for something the first dude did 6,000 years ago? 
in some garden. Why are you in trouble for that? Because Adam was your covenant head. Welcome to the covenant. Sinners. <laughs> but you could ask the same question. Why does some guy in Palestine 2,000 years ago getting crucified, why does that have anything to do with me? Lots of Jewish guys were crucified. The answer is that by faith in the crucified Son of God and his resurrection, you are united to him, and he becomes your new covenant head. It's in Romans 5. He's the new Adam. So all Christians functionally believe in the covenant. Joshua lived, remember, through the failure of Israel to take Canaan. Remember that? Joshua and Caleb, the faithful spies. The other ten say, no, they're too big. The giants are too big. The land will swallow us alive. Joshua and Caleb say, they're too big to miss. Let's go. But they, believe, they, they suffered the covenant consequences of 40 years in the wilderness while that unbelieving generation died out. The book of Deuteronomy is perhaps the clearest exposition of this way of covenantal thinking and speaking. I, I don't have time to run through all of the passages, but let me just point you to a few. After reviewing the whole history of Israel, being brought out of Egypt, being brought through the wilderness, the failures and so on, and being brought into the, uh, to the edge of the promised land, Moses proceeds to insist that the Israel he is speaking to now, 40 years later, on the cusp of going into the promised land, he insists that the Israel he's speaking to now is the same Israel who was brought out of Egypt, made covenant with God at Sinai. He said, wait a second, no, 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 that generation died. You just said that, Moses. He says, no, you, he brought you out of Egypt. He brought you to Sinai. You saw his glory. You heard the thunder and lightning. And so you must be faithful to this God. Moses insists on this in Deuteronomy 4. He says, you heard the voice of the Lord when he declared his covenant to you. How can Moses say that? Or when Moses reviews the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, he is emphatic at the beginning of Deuteronomy 5 that this covenant, the covenant of the Ten Commandments that was made at Sinai, was not made with their fathers, but with those Israelites who are alive this day. The Lord talked with them face to face out of the fire, Moses says. See how... How's that work, Moses? I remember they didn't believe and they died and you know, now we're here and that's why we're going to the promised land now. You just told us that story. Moses actually explains, he knows they're confused. At the end of Deuteronomy 5, Moses explains that they were present at the burning mountain and they saw God's glory through their representative heads and elders. Deuteronomy 5, 23 and 24. Through the representation of your heads, your elders, your chiefs, your officers, when they stood before me, you stood before me. And I reckoned you in them. You saw my glory because they saw my glory. 
you were brought out of Egypt because they were brought out of Egypt. They heard my voice, and so you heard my voice. God reckoned the next generation present and accountable through their covenantal heads and representatives. And Moses teaches Israel to teach their children to think and speak the same way. So it keeps going in Deuteronomy 6, particularly in that great first-person plural pronoun. We. This is how you learn to speak in covenantal language, with covenantal courage. Remember what, what they're to do. They're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and they're to teach these things to their children, and they're supposed to put it everywhere, Right? Put it on your refrigerator and your bumper stickers and put it on the gates of your house and talk about it when you get up and when you lie down and when you walk by the way, everywhere. And he says, in a time to come when your son asks you, Dad, what's up with all this? Why do you do all these things? You are to say to them, we were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 6. 20 and 21. Remember again, this is the second generation. This is the children. They say, and, 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 it's the, and they're talking to the, the grandchildren. We were slaves in Egypt. And God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the ongoing offering of the first fruits, remember this in Deuteronomy 26, at the end of Deuteronomy Every, every year they're to offer the first fruits and, and God, through Moses, gives them this script that they're supposed to say, a prayer. They're supposed to pray when they come and they offer the offering of the first fruits. The generations of Israel were given this script and they were to recite it before the Lord, identifying themselves with Abraham. And they were to say, Assyrian was my father and he went down to Egypt. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage and when we cried out unto the Lord, he delivered us. And it goes on, Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 8. This is a script that's given to them. It's saying, you know, for all generations, when you come bring your first fruits, this is what you're to say. My father was an Aramean. My father was a Syrian. He went down to Egypt. The Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And we cried out to the Lord, he delivered us. Every generation is to say this. We, I, and don't forget that Israel at this point included many repentant Egyptians. You remember that? I mean, if you're an Egyptian and you see the great showdown between Pharaoh and Yahweh, who are you going with? Right? It says explicitly when they leave Egypt, it says they went out a great mixed multitude. Exodus 12, 38. That means lots of Egyptians got a hint they got a clue we're going with that god <laughs> we're going with him he runs everything we thought it was pharaoh we thought he was the sun god he's not this god runs the, the water he runs the sky he runs everything we're going with him piles of egyptians went with the israelites and these Isra these egyptians are taught as they are circumcised and come into the covenant people of God to say, Assyrian was my father and went down to Egypt and the Egyptians evilly entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage and when we cried out unto the Lord, he delivered us. <laughs> you imagine being that Egyptian? 
remember Rahab and Jericho, right? There's Canaanites joining them along the way, Rahab and all her family joining the covenant people of God, and now they're going to recite this too. We were slaves in Egypt, and God brought us out. What does this have to do with courage? Well, first of all, God knows what he's doing. He says, I want you to learn to talk this way, think this way. But why? Because God knows that we are people who are tempted to fear, tempted to think that we are all alone. Am I the only one who thinks this? Am I the only one that's sane here? The whole, I mean, that's the, that's the move that's being brought against you, right? Everybody in the world knows that you're hateful. Everyone in the world knows that you're backward and bigoted. Everyone knows that. And we're tempted to believe it. And God says, no, I want you to remember who you are. And I want you to say over and over and over again, I belong to the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God brought us out with a mighty hand. And he brought us through the wilderness, and he gave us Canaan. But of course, the story doesn't end there, does it? But it stretches all the way back. Who you stand with? stand with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua. I stand with David and I stand with Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and I stand with John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus is my older brother. And I stand with Augustine. And I stand with Calvin. And I stand with Whitfield. What are you talking about? I'm not alone. I'm not alone. See how that works? Covenantal courage is built on understanding that you are not alone. You say we. You know who you're messing with. Right? I mean, Lewis says somewhere that Christians are tempted. We, we, we have this myopic view of the church, and we think of the church, and we think of it as being splintered and divided and weak and limping. And, of course, there's some truth to that. But Lewis says he remembers before he believed. And he said he thought of the church as this magnificent, united edifice. He says, I hated it. <laughs> I despised it. But I was terrified of it. Can you see that? Yes, we are. We are weak. We are sinful. We are broken in various places. But the church of God, the covenant people of God, is, is, is identified together as this mighty army. It's the church of the Lord Jesus, such that even when, you remember, you know, Saul is breathing threats and going down to Damascus to 
throw the Christians in jail. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We are the body of Christ. We are united. So the Bible teaches us to speak clearly and unapologetically with the language of covenant identity. And, and, and this means that I am with these people. These are my brothers and sisters. Right? You mess with my brothers and sisters in China, you're messing with me. You don't know what kind of family you're messing with. You think the Italians are bad. We belong to Jesus, and we belong to his family. And this is a family that goes way back. It's full of Egyptians, and it's full of Canaanites, and it's full of Ethiopians. And it's full of people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And, and hear this, hear this, get this. You, you, I, don't, you know, I don't know most of you. I know your stories. And some of you, your first generation Christians, you just came to the Lord. You just think, you know, think I don't know where to start. I wish I, wish I had family. I wish I had, I wish I had people. And I, let me tell you, if you know Jesus, you have family. You have fathers. You have mothers. You have grandfathers. You have a legacy. You have a story. It's already yours in Christ. And you know what? The glorious thing is lots of them don't look like you. This is what covenant identity means. It says we... We were slaves in Egypt. We were brought out with a mighty hand. We were delivered from the nations. We were raised up into a kingdom. We were scattered for our sins and we were gathered back together and we rebuilt. And we met our God. And he died and he rose again. And he ascended. And we took Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. And we've gotten pretty close to the ends of the earth. You can see why you're so afraid of us. You see the difference? Who are you? Right? What's the story, really? Or the narrative you're being told is you're on the run, you're losing. The church is just stick a fork in it, it's going to be over. God's dead. You know, they've been saying God is dead for centuries. It's propaganda, people. And we are tempted to believe it. No, the reason why the nations rage, the reason why the nations conspire and plot is because they know they're losing. Have you guys been following the whole crackdown in China? Early reign, covenant church, pastor there. Can't remember his name. He's one of the churches, you know, they refuse to register with the state, so they're technically underground. Of course, they're not literally underground anymore, but they're, they won't register. 
because he says you have no authority over the Christian church. The communists are afraid, so they threw a bunch of the elders and pastors into jail. And you know what we need to be thinking? It means the communist government is on the run. They're scared. They're panicking. Throw us in jail, and guess what that means? We're one step closer to winning. Right? Not only that, not only does the language of covenant teach us identity, and so it teaches us courage in our identity, in the family of God, and the body of Christ, that we are part of this body, this church. But it also teaches us covenant responsibility, and this responsibility flows in different directions. The children were told that they were there when God made covenant with them at Sinai. Their eyes saw, their ears heard. And the children are told also, though, that they sinned against the Lord with the golden calf. Again, they did this through the representation of their fathers, their covenant heads and elders. So this is what Joshua had done. Joshua identified with his fathers and he identified with his children and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren. As for me and my house, he identified with them all. And he had taken responsibility for them. Right? So think about this. I mean, it's easy. I mean, this is easy in a small family where a dad says, yeah, yeah, we, we serve the Lord. We're Christians in here. We're Christians. Shut up. We're Christians, right? right? Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. How does Joshua, how, I mean, how do I have the right to speak for me and my four kids and my wife, let alone Joshua speak for, again, hundreds of thousands of people? What did he do? Is he just being an arrogant patriarch? No, he had put in the time. He courageously faced their weaknesses. He faced their idols. He faced their sin. He addressed it. He corrected them. He admonished them. And so he could speak for his whole household courageously because he had already spoken with his household courageously. We will serve the Lord. He could say, we will serve the Lord honestly because they had been practicing for a while. Of course, this is precisely where a current culture battle is raging. Many of you know Al Mohler recently released the Southern Seminary Report on Race Relations and Slavery and the History of, the, of Southern Seminary. And it, it seems to assume a certain sort of vague covenant theology, actually. A certain facile understanding of covenant theology could seem to grant a report like this significant power or manipulative power. So we ask a question like, weren't we present with our fathers and elders when they owned slaves or practiced racial animosity? The reasoning, right? The logic. I mean, if they were present when their fathers were serving golden calves, then were we present when our fathers were owning slaves and practicing racial prejudice? Well, yes, we were. But the question is, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? 
The report wasn't out five minutes before there were calls for reparations and restitution. So what, what do we do? I would argue that Joshua actually gives us a faithful pattern. But his example requires courage. After reviewing the covenantal history at the end of his life, so Joshua walks him through it. You all did this. You were slaves. You were brought out. You went to Sinai. You sinned against God. A bunch of you didn't want to go into the promised land, so a bunch of you had to die. Then we went into the promised land 40 years later. Now we got the land. Now we're here. And he says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You know what that means? They still have idols with them they brought from Egypt. There are apparently still people. They've seen all of this. They were brought out of Egypt. They made covenant with God. They got, you know, went to the golden calf thing. A bunch of, you know, got in trouble over and over again in the wilderness. Took the land, and some of them still have idols with them. They brought from Egypt. Israel is reminded of their father's idolatry, but Israel is not told to repent of their father's idolatry. Israel is confronted with their own idolatry. He's not just saying, you should feel really bad your parents worshiped the golden calf. He says, your parents worshiped the golden calf, and look at you still doing it. Israel is confronted with their own idolatry. Covenantal complicity is reckoned by failure to repent now. Covenantal complicity is reckoned by failure to repent now. How is the idolatry of the slave trade, the idolatry of the mistreatment of slaves, the idolatry of racial vainglory and animosity, how are those idols being worshipped today? That's the question that needs to be asked. And I would argue they are being worshipped with far greater devotion today through the welfare state, through government schools indoctrinating our children with sexual perversion, and through the systematic targeting of blacks and other minorities by the abortion industrial complex. Economist Walter Williams says, quote, The undeniable truth is that neither slavery nor Jim Crow, nor the harshest racism has decimated the black family the way the welfare state has. The most damage done to black Americans is inflicted by those politicians, civil rights leaders, and academics who assert that every problem confronting blacks is a result of a legacy of slavery and discrimination. That's a vision that guarantees perpetuity for the problems. Walter Williams agrees with Joshua. The way you repent of past evils is by repenting of their present manifestations. The way you repent of past evils is by repenting of their present manifestations. Otherwise, you're just perpetuating the problem. Covenantal courage not only owns the whole story, but the most courageous thing it does is address the current idols. Right? Joshua could have stopped, told the story, 
and said, you know, it's been great, guys. One, two, three, break. But instead he said, I know what's in your house. You're still doing the sins. It might look a little different. It's a little golden calf. Maybe you borrowed something from the Canaanites, but you're doing the same thing. Stop that. Addressing old idolatry all by itself requires relatively little courage. Especially when everyone else is doing it. Racial pride and animosity is always sinful. Full stop. But right now, addressing past racial sins without connecting them to our current racial sins functions, I don't say that people intend to or mean to, but it functions as nothing but pharisaical virtue signaling. And I say that with immense respect for Al Mohler. The other glaring omission from the Southern Seminary Report is a clear scriptural standard. Read it yourself. Read it. There is, there is virtually no, maybe none at all, scriptural standards for evaluating the historical data. What are we to make of these facts? How are we to evaluate these, this information? There are piles of assumed standards with value judgments throughout, but without the word of God reigning over the entire project, clearly defining sin, clearly defining justice and mercy and humility. There's none of it there. There are no biblical standards evaluating the historical data, which means that you can drive an aircraft carrier through the ambiguities in the report. But to have defined everything clearly, according to Scripture, would not receive, it would not have at all been received as humility in the sight of the world. If someone had gone along and annotated it, and the Bible says this about this, and the Bible says this about this, and the Bible says this about this, all throughout, I guarantee you, that report would have been called arrogant, bigoted, and racist. And this is why that sort of thing requires courage. This leads directly to the point that covenantal courage is built on the covenantal word. This has been stated already in a number of ways by the other speakers. I'll move through this a little bit faster. You cannot have covenantal courage divorced from the covenantal word. This includes all the progressive and soft progressive pretend heroism of doing whatever everyone else is already doing and calling it brave, oh so brave. Covenantal courage is built on the covenantal word found in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation without apology, without embarrassment, without flinching, without explaining it away, without throat-clearing Greek word studies. 
including all the parts that offend modern sensibilities, including the parts where God commanded the slaughter of entire cities, men, women, and children, including the parts that regulate and allow for various forms of slavery, regulate relations between slaves and masters, including the whole book of Philemon. And we can multiply the sorts of passages that covenantal courage requires us to embrace, passages that state plainly that a woman is the weaker vessel, and therefore to be honored and protected, passages which teach that husbands are to love their wives and wives are to obey their husbands, passages which teach that sexual intimacy is only blessed by God in the institute of marriage between one man, one woman, as determined by their genetic and biological identities assigned by God at conception. This includes the clear and unambiguous condemnation of sexual promiscuity of every sort, heterosexual lust, homosexual lust, sodomy, pedophilia, bestiality, and every form of cross-dressing, including the kind that's done with chemicals and surgery nowadays. It's just cross-dressing. And you need to tell them that. You're not really a man. You're dressed up like one. Yeah, it cost you a lot of money. But you're not really a man. Bruce Jenner, you're not really a woman. This covenantal word includes the clear condemnation of women serving on the front lines of combat, law enforcement, and all athletics that require a woman to be in physical danger to hit, be hit, shoot, or be shot at. The Bible calls an abomination. This includes the clear word that a woman with boyishly short hair is shameful. I didn't write it, Paul did. And man with long hair is shameful. Does not nature itself teach us this fact? Have I made everybody uncomfortable yet? How about this? The effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think Josh beat me to this actually already. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you have an ESV, I'm sorry, but they screwed that verse up. Men who prance, men who mince their words, lisp, wear tight pants, and get manicures, obsess over their appearance in the mirror, will go to hell unless the grace of God intervenes. And we may as well note here that there's a place reserved in the lake of fire for cowards. Revelation 22, verse 8. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. The 1689 Baptist Convention again says the covenant of grace revealed in the gospel was first promised by Adam to Adam by the seed of the woman and afterward by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. It's a little weak, guys. The Westminster says, was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. Pretty sure we can all agree on that. Covenantal courage is built on the covenantal word, and this means that all scripture is given by God, by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you know it. But not to put too fine a point on it, those scriptures that Timothy had known from childhood were the Old Testament. 
And if we are a nation full of men who are thoroughly unequipped for good works, maybe we should begin with a question about whether we have steeped ourselves in all the scriptures or have we run yellow warning tape around a bunch of it and said, do not enter. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus meets those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him because they were slow to believe what? All the prophets had spoken. And Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Or in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man begs that someone be sent back to warn his brothers about the torment to come. But Abraham says to him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Luke 16, 31. So if we are not steeped in Old Testament law and the prophets, if we are not saturated with the Psalms, the war songs of the church, how can we say that we are fully equipped for every good work? This covenantal word also drives men to exercise covenantal courage because it is necessarily a public word. This covenantal word is necessarily a public word. The Bible is not a private document for a private club. The Bible is the authoritative word of the Lord of all. The way God intends to teach his church courage is by requiring his ministers in particular to proclaim his authoritative word in the public square and to the public square. So closely connected to courage is the notion of authority. Wherever Jesus went and wherever his apostles after him went, the repeated astonishment over and over again was what? They speak with authority. They didn't teach or preach with any hesitation. They weren't apologizing for interrupting or causing disturbances. They were full of boldness and courage. They believed that the gospel was more important than everything else going on. And then, of course, the immediate follow-up question was always, and who authorized this? Where did you get your authority from? And Jesus and the apostles preached with the kind of authority that made other authorities nervous, envious, fearful, and mad. And modern preachers can rarely get anyone to even care. You know, the Anglican bishop or pastor or whatever one time said probably heard this everywhere Paul went riots broke out everywhere I go they serve me tea it's easy to point out that the Israelites had clearly been given the land of Canaan and that was a promise that was unique to the old covenant Joshua knew his marching orders yes fine But what authority and command has our Joshua been given? Our Joshua, our Jesus, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He has not been given some authority. He is not in the process of trying to get the authority. There's no waiting period. He's not running for office of Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's not trying to get enough votes. Jesus died and rose again 
And he has been given the name that is above every name, such that every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that he is their Lord. Every tongue. Psalm 2 says, and and the apostles refer to Psalm 2. They say it was talking about Jesus and what happened with Jesus. And and Psalm 2 says, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 2.8. So what did Jesus do when he ascended into heaven? What is Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father now? He He ascended into heaven to receive the nations for his inheritance, to be crowned as the rightful king of the universe, taking possession of the other uttermost parts of the earth. He purchased it all with his blood, and therefore he has authority over it now. It belongs to him, all of it belongs to him now. And so this is the clear basis for the command, go make disciples of all nations. We're not commanded to make disciples of all the nations in order that Jesus might become Lord of the nations. We are commanded to make disciples of all the nations because Jesus is already their Lord. And all those who have not bowed the knee are in high rebellion to their Lord. This discipleship we have been commanded to carry out in every nation of men explicitly requires teaching all men everywhere to obey Jesus in everything. Matthew 28, verse 20. This is what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Therefore, he requires all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere includes men in Congress, Men in the courts, men in parliaments, men in the UN, men in the White House, men in the media. Christian faith believes that Jesus has been given authority over everything in heaven and on earth. But the modern evangelical church has watered this authority down to a vague spiritual Sunday school club where Jesus has authority over quiet times, spiritual thoughts, and about 45 minutes on Sunday morning. We hear this word of absolute authority and hear this commission and we timidly suggest maybe, perhaps, the nice Philistines will let us have a seat at their committee meetings. Maybe we can have a voice in the deliberations, equal representation with the secularists. We promise that we will not be very confident, we will be very unsure of ourselves, and we will say everything we have to say in very quiet, submissive tones. But there's no authority except from Jesus. He establishes families, churches, and nations, and every minister of the gospel has been authorized by the Lord of the universe to declare his word to every creature. This includes city council members, Supreme Court justices, and mommy bloggers. This covenantal word is necessarily a public word. So what is the message we have for Justice Ginsburg? What is the message we have for President Trump? What is the message we have for every judge, every governor, every military uh, general or law enforcement officer? The message we have is Jesus is Lord, put away your idols. As for me and my congregation, as for me and my city, as for me and my state, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think I'm out of time. But... I want to close with a little case study. One of the things that we are up against is we have been trained to believe that conflict is bad. You hear a report, there was a church split. 
there was an argument. There was a fight. There was whatever. And, and the Christian instinct, the things that have been inculcated into us is to think, oh, that's too bad. Which is not a biblical response at all. The question has everything to do with, well, who was fighting and what were they fighting about? You hear, you know, the headline, Israelites and Philistines have conflict. Right? Uh, angry shepherd boy strikes out in anger. One dead, or many dead, I guess. Oh, it's too bad. It really spoiled their witness. We were really making inroads with the Philistines. We were, you know, doing the coffee house evangelism thing. And David just cut off his head? I mean, that's what we do. Oh, David, you messed up our our witness. I mean, that's what his brothers are kind of mad about, right? He he shows up and they're like, who's going to kill the giant? Shut up. David, quit it. Who do you think you are? You got this all under control. We don't know what we're doing, but shut up. And Christians need to recognize that, yeah, there's sinful conflict, there's sinful wars, there's sinful division, and there's godly conflict, godly wars, godly division. Read the Bible. It's there. This is why God specifically calls men to be strong and courageous. The Bible clearly teaches that the glory of men is their strength. This is what you're for, men. This is why the man was made first. Man was made first in order that he might die first. God made men strong so they could be broken. That's what you're for. That's what we're for. And it's pictured in the first man. He made the first man, why? To break him open. Why? To make glory in the first woman. skip it because I'm courageous putting all this together means that men and ministers of the gospel in particular are called to be strong in order to take hits and give hits and get back up again and do it again they are made men you are made to collide with the enemies of the gospel You are made to collide with sin, your sin and the sin in your family. You are made to collide with unbelief. You are made to come into collision with the idols around you. Men are the kind of human beings who are made to be broken open for the good and glory of our people. But you have been trained by generations of effeminate seminary professors that your job is primarily to be nice and sweet and that all conflict is bad. But this is not true. And I want to give the book of Acts as a great example of this. One of the ways you could describe the book of Acts is basically evangelism by riot. Right? That's the book of Acts. Evangelism by riot. And what I want to do is I just really quickly as I finish, I just want to point this out. By my count, there are about 14 public disturbances in the book of Acts. Go home, read it. You count them for yourselves. I counted 14 public disturbances. Riots, mobs, 
imprisonment, that kind of thing, public disturbances, the kind of thing that would show up in the newspaper. And we have been taught to believe that when it shows up in the newspaper like that, we cringe. Oh, we were, we had, oh, my, your testimony, oh. And Luke knows that that's our temptation, and so he wrote the book of Acts. And not only does he tell us all of these collisions, all of these explosions, all these public, all these public disturbances, but by my count, 13 of 14 is pretty pervasive. He tells us the result. So let me just, just run through this. Pentecost commotion. They think they're drunk. Right? Jews drunk, as the headline says, right? Luke says, 3,000 baptisms. That was good. Lame man controversy. They heal the lame man at the temple, right? Controversy. Thrown in prison. Result, 2,000 more believers. Three, commotion after the prison break. Remember? The prison break. Where'd they go? We thought we told you to stop preaching. What happened? The disciples are increasing in number. Number four, Stephen's controversy. I mean, he's freshly ordained deacon. Come on, buddy. Right? Immediately picking fights with the, with the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. What's the result of the stoning of Stephen and everybody's scattered? What? You think, ah, see, we had something going in Jerusalem. What happened? They're scattered. We're doing what? Preaching the word wherever they went. Five, Saul confesses Jesus in Damascus. Plots ensue. That's the only one I can't find a result from Luke on. Six, Saul preaches in Jerusalem. Sorry, seven, angry crowd in Antioch. This is Acts 13. Angry crowd in Antioch. Result, Luke says, Gentiles rejoicing, glorifying God and believing. Number eight, rowdy crowds in Iconium. Acts 14. Result? Half the city sides with the apostles. Pretty good. Eight, violent mob in Lystra stones Paul. Acts 14. Result? Luke says the disciples are strengthened and encouraged. Number nine, violent mob in Philippi. Acts 16. Result? The Philippian jailer and family converted, and the brothers were greatly encouraged. The apostle got thrown in jail. Win. Number 10, violent mob in Thessalonica, Acts 17. Result, many devout Greeks and leading women believe. Number 11, angry crowd in Berea. Result, many Jews believed along with a number of the leading Greek women. A riot in Ephesus. Result, the name of Jesus was extolled, the word increased, and the brothers were greatly encouraged. Number 13, angry mob in Jerusalem. Remember that when he goes back down to Jerusalem, there's the angry mob, and he says, hold on a second, there's a bunch of people here. Can I preach? Right? The gospel is proclaimed to the crowd. 14, there's a violent dissension in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Result, a chance to preach to governors. Then the, the book of Acts, he just ends, right? What did Paul do? He got an all-expense-paid trip to Rome on Rome's nickel. Right? And what does it say at the end of Acts, right? Paul's in there under house arrest, preaching the gospel unhindered with all boldness. We need to see that this is how God works. 
We're afraid of conflict. We're afraid of the fight. We're afraid of the argument. We're afraid of being taken poorly. We're afraid of being called names. And we need to think more biblically. We need to think like Paul. We need to think. When the fight breaks out, this is a chance to preach the gospel. This is a chance to love them. How will you love your enemies if you don't have any? Isn't that what we're trying, like frantically trying not to have any enemies? I don't want anybody to not like me. I don't want anybody to hate me. But then how are you going to love them? How will you bless them? How will you serve them if you don't have any enemies? If you've not collided with the enemy, where is your courage? We serve the Lord of armies. We serve the Lord of hosts. We have been made part of a great family, a great people, a great nation. We belong to the family of Abraham. We belong to the family of Jesus. We belong to the body of Christ. He owns this place. He bought it with his blood. He died and rose again and he ascended into heaven to be king over it all. And he didn't send us in to make deals or try to get a place at the table. He sent it in us in to announce that they're done. And if they come and arrest us, we say, I guess we're winning. They fire us. We get kicked out. We don't get invited to the party. We say, perfect. They put the mic in your face. You bigot, you hater. What are you doing? You say, Jesus is Lord. He died and rose again. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. But we have to learn that. We have to believe that. Father, I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that we would learn to say we. That you would teach us to see that we have been identified not merely with Jesus, but we have been identified with his people. That we are part of a family that stretches back. That we have fathers and mothers. We have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That we are part of a great army. That you have bought this place, that you are Lord of it all that your word governs it all and teach us to be completely unafraid. And Father, in particular, I pray that we would know, we have wisdom to know where you have called us to collide with the enemy. And I pray that you would give us courage to do so with joy and gladness believing that you're giving it to us. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.